Hello, good morning and welcome to episode 16 of EV Brief. My name is Jonathan and this is your weekly rundown of electric vehicle and sustainable transport news from Australia and around the world. And on today's show, we'll be looking at some news around Dieselgate, the emissions scandal that caught a number of the world's leading car manufacturers cheating emissions testing, and specifically how much more involved Audi was in Volkswagen's illegal attempts to deceive regulators. In EV charging news, Australian company Powertech is manufacturing batteries specifically for EV fast charging stations and has partnered with ChargeFox for an Australian rollout. Also, Tritium, the manufacturer of ultra-rapid charging stations, has again expanded its European presence, signing a massive deal with UK-based charging provider Box Energy for a minimum of 2,500 charges. In Tesla business news, the automaker has just posted a 408 million US dollar loss in quarter two, but what's the bigger picture for the future of the company beyond the gloom from Wall Street? We'll have a look at the balance sheet for the automaker and what the future holds for production and revenue. The Dieselgate emissions scandal cost Volkswagen over 30 billion US dollars so far. With uh, numerous lawsuits still pending, criminal charges filed against Volkswagen's employees and two officials already in prison. In breaking news this week, Rupert Stadler, former chief executive of Audi, has been charged with fraud, falsifying certificates and illegal advertising by German authorities, alongside three other employees of the carmaker who were actually unnamed. The New York Times states that prosecutors said in a statement that Mr. Stadler had known about the manipulation by the end of September 2015 at the latest, but continued to allow the cars to be sold or failed to take any action to prevent their sale. Germany has pursued the major players in the Dieselgate scandal strongly, with VW executive Martin Winterkorn already facing charges in Germany and the US. If convicted, Rupert Stadler could face a fine or up to five years in prison. The New York Times also has a story that Volkswagen subsidiary Audi was more deeply involved in the emissions cheating scheme than previously thought, with Audi continuing to sell implicated vehicles as late as 2017, whilst the US DOJ was accusing VW of emissions cheating. The documents obtained by the New York Times show that as early as 0708, the diesel engine development department of Audi realised there were significant challenges in meeting strict emissions testing requirements, and one engineer wrote in an email to senior management, quote, we won't make it without a few dirty tricks, end quote. In 2008, an unidentified engineer crafted a PowerPoint presentation that offered a risky way around the problem by creating two operating modes for vehicles, one for emissions testing and one for regular use. Despite knowing this was potentially illegal, Audi engineers deployed the software anyway and admitted in a plea agreement as such with the DOJ. For me, this begs the question, why didn't Volkswagen, or Daimler for that matter, who actually had a stake in Tesla early on, go all in on alternative fuel vehicles and specifically EVs if they realised there was no way to create diesel vehicles that could meet emissions test standards? Both companies were lauding the benefits of their clean diesel AdBlue Bluetech systems and the catalytic converters they were using from 2008, whilst simultaneously working on defeat devices and deriding Toyota's hybrid approach. Furthermore, Daimler and Toyota had each already invested $50 million in Tesla by 2010, and Tesla even produced the drivetrains for the electric B-Class and the RAV4, yet both companies walked away from their investment, noticeably richer but uh, seemingly happy to leave Tesla with a massive competitive advantage in battery electric technology. And while Daimler has now committed to an electric future with the uh, Mercedes EQC in production, and Toyota has a joint venture with Subaru on electric drivetrains, we've yet to see more than timelines and product plans from both companies stretching into the 2020s. 
Now, even if you don't drive an electric vehicle, you've likely seen EV chargers popping up in shopping centres, uh, airports and other public places. With the increase in global EV sales, one potential issue identified by sceptics of the technology has been the load of high-capacity vehicle chargers on electricity grids. A number of companies are already addressing this complaint before it even becomes an issue. Powertech has partnered with Australian charging network provider ChargeFox to build and install bespoke battery systems at fast charging sites that will, on average, draw 50% less peak power than traditional charging sites. Initially, six ChargeFox sites will be battery-enabled, with each site supported by a 273-kilowatt-hour battery with LG Chem lithium-ion cells. This capacity will allow the sites to provide full power from the battery system for one hour, significantly reducing baseload power usage. In its press release, Powertech states that significant cost savings will come from existing sites not having to construct another connection to the power distribution network, and that the company plans to charge the batteries from on-site renewable power technologies. Tritium is a good news manufacturing story for Australia, with its proprietary VFIL RT fast and ultra-rapid chargers providing power to EV drivers all across the globe. Last week, the UK's Box Energy announced Tritium would be the sole supplier of DC fast charging technology across its 2,500 UK charging sites, with plans for completion of the network by 2025. The first 100 sites are expected to be operational by January 2020, with a combination of 50kW and 150kW DC chargers. The 2019 Porsche Cayenne e-hybrid has been announced, with the German automaker adding significantly more battery capacity to the car over the previous year's model. A new 3-litre turbocharged V6 puts out 335 horsepower and is mated to a 134 horsepower electric motor with 14.1 kilowatt hours of battery capacity on board. This is a 30% increase over last year's Cayenne's electric capacity and provides an estimated electric-only range of 22 miles. The combined 455 horsepower and 516 pounds foot of torque also makes the KN quite a lively beast, sprinting to 60 miles an hour in 4.7 seconds. In a Cayenne first, Porsche has also fitted PDCC dynamic chassis control to the new e-hybrid, reducing roll and increasing lateral stability at high speeds. You do pay a premium for the e-hybrid technology, however, with uh, this model starting at $80,000 in the US and around $140,000 in Australia. Next, we have another German plug-in hybrid that has received a small increase in battery capacity, this time from BMW. The new 330e has been unveiled this week, combining a 2-litre, 184-horsepower engine with a 68-horsepower electric motor and 12 kilowatt hours of lithium goodness. All this makes for a 0-60 to 60 mile an hour time of 6 seconds and an estimated electric-only range of 60 kilometres. I'll share a link to the reveal in the show notes. European customers will be able to order this car in the next few months, with American customers having to wait until 2020. There's no word yet from BMW on when the plug-in will uh, be available in Asia and the Pacific. The Ford F-Series pickup generated $41 billion US dollars in revenue for Ford in 2018 alone, and has been the best-selling vehicle range in the US since 1986. This week, Ford revealed an electric F-150 pickup prototype, a game-changer for a vehicle that is the epitome of fuel-burning American car culture. Linda Zhang, chief engineer for the F-150, was tasked with driving the prototype in front of the media, and for the event, Ford went all out, demonstrating the pulling power of the vehicle by towing 10 double-decker rail cars loaded with what else but F-150 pickups. The total weight was estimated at around 1 million pounds, and the F-150 electric appeared to perform flawlessly. 
No word on specifications or release timing yet, however, with Tesla's pickup and Rivian's R1T pickup possibly set to launch in the North American market in the next 12 months, Ford will realise the importance of ensuring that firstly the quality and performance of the F-150 EV is up to scratch, but secondly that it can actually get it on sale in a timely manner to ensure that they dominate the EV pickup market. Let's move to Tesla, and upon the company's announcement of a 408 million US dollar loss in quarter two in last week's shareholder letter, there was an expected response of scorn and pessimism from media commentators and short sellers as the company missed profitability targets set by many analysts on Wall Street. Analysts' guides and predictions are not the way to sound out the financial health of the automotive world's biggest disruptor, however, so let's break down some of the detail from Tesla's shareholder letter update. Firstly, there's that loss. The shareholder letter reveals a gap net loss of $408 million and an operating loss of $167 million. Let's have a look at some of the metrics. Tesla's total revenues equaled $6.35 billion, including auto sales and leasing, energy generation and storage, and various services. Tesla's costs to deliver the vehicles, products and services were around $5.43 billion, leaving a gross profit of $921 million. From that $921 million, to get to net profit, we have to subtract $324 million of research and development costs, which are about 5% of total revenue, general and administrative costs of $648 million, which are actually down $55 million from last quarter. Other expenses to be considered are restructuring costs of $117 million, which Tesla claims are a one-off, income taxes of $19 million, and also mentioned are gains attributable to non-controlling interests, that is, a proportional allocation of equity goes to minority interests, and this cost Tesla an additional $19 million in quarter two. Thus far, we're looking at a loss of $206 million, but we then have to factor in $203 million of interest and other expenses. This takes us to the total of a net loss of $408 million for Q2. The interest and other expenses item is high due to the convertible bonds Tesla currently holds, and also currency movements and a weakening US dollar affecting Tesla negatively this quarter. A number of commentators would look at this and say that uh, this debt is bad for business, but I believe that that's missing the point, and as a Tesla optimist, and full disclosure, not a shareholder, taking on this debt and continuing to have ongoing interest charges has given the company the capital to grow production at uh, 50 to 100% year-on-year, expand into new markets and not dilute shareholders' holdings by giving equity to lenders. So yes, Tesla could show better profitability by reducing things like interest expenses and R&D, but R&D is a critical investment in the future. Through this 5% of revenue cost, which is at the lower end of what automakers are spending on R&D by the way, Tesla is driving economies of scale and long-term return for shareholders. Some other highlights from the shareholder letter are that the Model 3 delivery is reaching an all-time high of 77,634 units in Q2, making the Model 3 the best-selling premium vehicle in the US, and sales are only just ramping up in Europe and other right-hand drive markets. It's expected that the Model 3 will quickly catch up to other premium vehicles in Europe soon. Tesla states manufacturing costs of the Model 3 continue to decline, and that the Fremont factory in California has demonstrated the ability to produce 7,000 units minimum per week. On Model S and X vehicles, since the Raven update in May, deliveries are up in Q2 by 20% to 17,722 units. However, it looks like the S and X will always live in the shadow of the Model 3's sales success now. But that's the story of premium vehicles, and Tesla has always said they are far less important than the Model 3 for the bottom line of the company.
On the tech side of things, Tesla continues to roll out autopilot updates and safety updates for its car's computers, which is something that legacy manufacturers, even those with competitors to Tesla's products, still are not doing. This speed of innovation and over-the-air updates is one reason that I believe Tesla has a huge competitive advantage over its competition and why we will start to see a profitable financial situation over the medium term. From the letter, quote, We expect positive quarterly free cash flow, with possible temporary exceptions, particularly around the launch and ramp of new products. We believe our business has grown to the point of being self-funding, end quote. Now, there's no reason not to believe this, with Tesla aiming for 10,000 units per week of production by the end of 2019, the Chinese Gigafactory coming online at the end of 2019 also, and Tesla's goal of 500,000 units globally from uh, July 19 to June 20. Tesla has also got Model 3 production down pat after some initial quality issues and problems, and they've also now overcome major fixed cost barriers of production for the Model 3. And speaking of those costs, uh, Tesla is gearing up for Model Y production to start at the end of the year with deliveries from fall 2020. Tesla says, quote, Due to a significant overlap of components between Model 3 and Model Y, we are able to leverage existing manufacturing designs in the development of the Model Y production facilities. We believe Model Y will be a more profitable product than the Model 3, end quote. Basically, Tesla is bringing out an SUV version of the Model 3 that won't require retooling of a factory or expensive new machinery, and it's going to generate significant organic demand for the company. Tesla is really powering ahead with cell production and still holds a huge competitive advantage over other car makers who are not producing their own battery cells, and we still haven't heard much from the recent acquisition of Maxwell Technologies yet. Aside from the vehicles, Tesla Energy uh, Powerwall and Powerpack deployment grew by 81% in Q2, which is really huge, with 415 megawatt hours deployed. Tesla also announced this week the Megapack, which is the utility-scale storage solution, uh, with plug-and-play batteries up to 3 megawatt hours each. Tesla estimates there are over 50,000 sites globally with Powerwalls now. Bad news for the solar business, though, with solar roof deployments down to 29 megawatts for the quarter. That's a decrease from Q1 of 40%. And I think until the unit cost of Tesla's solar product to the solar roof comes down, we're not going to see this as a big growth area for the company in terms of sales. A final note on the numbers. Tesla is sitting on a large pile of cash in the form of over $5 billion. Yes, the May capital raise saw an increase of uh, $2.4 billion alone, but the fact they have been able to add to it is a positive sign for the future financial health of the company. The Chinese Gigafactory is also being funded through local debt to the tune of $510 million for the first stage, meaning that Tesla won't have to dip into its cash reserves for this factory. Also, GAP operating expenses were actually flat, coming in at $1.1 billion for Q1 and Q2, despite a 50% growth in vehicle deliveries for Q2. Q3 is looking good for Tesla, with orders already outpacing those for Q2, though as it stands, Tesla still has an uphill battle and uh, will have to push production really hard to hit the 360 to 400,000 unit delivery target for 2019. Now hopefully that brief rundown of the Tesla shareholder letter was interesting. If you have any comments on the Tesla numbers or if you think I've made any mistakes, please get in touch and let me know. That's it for episode 16 of EV Brief. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. You can subscribe on all good podcast networks and also find EV Brief on Twitter and Facebook. Please also consider leaving a review to show your support or jump on over to patreon.com slash evbriefpodcast. My name is Jonathan. Thanks so much for listening to the show today and have a fantastic week.